Hello and welcome to a new episode of Send Talks, brought to you by the Conservative Environment Network. My name is Lindsay Jones, I'm Climate Programme Manager at SEN, and with me today we've got... I'm John Fletcher, the Head of SEN's International Programme. James Conwell, Senior Nature Programme Manager at SEN. And today we're going to be talking about conservative environmental issues from home and abroad. Um, so today we're going to be looking at the local elections from last week, the Queen's speech um, and uh, looking ahead to the Australian election next week. The environmental challenge which confronts the whole world demands an equivalent response from the whole world. This is the start of a whole series of processes that will need to go on for the rest of your life and far beyond it in order to protect the environment. Instead of making excuses tomorrow to our children and grandchildren, we should be taking action against climate change today. Conservatism and conservation are natural allies. We will build back and bounce back greener and this government will lead that green industrial revolution. So James, uh, do you want to kick us off uh, with what happened with the local elections last week? Was it a disappointing result? Uh, yes, yeah, so large parts of the country went to the polls last Thursday. It was a disappointing set of results uh, across the UK for the Conservative Party. Uh, the Liberal Democrats were the main uh, beneficiaries. Uh, the Green Party also took seats uh, and votes off of uh, Conservative candidates. Uh, and as I'm sure many people saw um, in the news, Labour also took iconic um, Conservative London boroughs, uh, including Westminster and Wandsworth. So, I mean, what does it tell us for the environment, really? Is, how, can we, how much can we take away from the local elections? Well, it's important not to, to read into uh, local election results too much, um, but I think we can extrapolate a, a few things. Uh, firstly, is that both the Liberal Democrats and the Green Party did campaign on environmental issues, particularly in um, traditional Conservative seats in, in the South East and the South West. Um, water pollution uh, and river quality were, were a particularly uh, effective campaign um, messages for, for the Liberal Democrats. Um, and this is backed up by some polling from Unchecked UK, which shows that there's no support in the Blue Wolf, any weakening of environmental um, protection. So you put those two things together, and it suggests that uh, in order to retain some of these seats, which the Conservative Party is going to need to do, um, to hold on to its 2019 coalition um, and, and you know, succeed in the next general election, uh, the party will need to um, demonstrate uh, its credibility uh, on the environment. Do you think that these are sort of a precursor to an upcoming general election? Well, it's, it's difficult. I mean, in, incumbent governments notoriously do bad in, in local elections. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that they, they then go on to lose the, the next general election. Um, I'm sure that Conservative Party strategists will be concerned um, about what they saw uh, last week. But I think you know, essentially the party needs to face in, in three directions. Um, it's going to retain its, its 2019 coalition. And I think the, the environment as a, as a policy issue can, can help them do that without getting bound up in, in contradictions. Uh, for, the, for the Red Wall and, and the kind of new Conservative voters um, in the Midlands and the north of England, I think a big focus on green jobs and, and new um, industries um, can help to deliver the, the levelling up promises that, that the party has made to those, uh, those areas of the country. Uh, in the south we, in the southeast, of course, it's, it's 
strong perceptions for our, for our rivers, for our green spaces, um, and uh, improving uh, nature in, in the green belts. Uh, and then in the southwest, I think it's about uh, making sure that those rural communities don't feel left out from the Leveling Up agenda, um, making sure that the government's new uh, farm support system, which will reward farmers for environmental, protect, uh, environmental improvements, um, making sure that that, that, that works, uh, and also I'd, I'd, I'd say protecting um, standards and trade deals, because that's an issue that Liberal Democrats are making some um, some hay out of in, in the southwest of the country, and it's causing some anxiety to, to farmers. And I think you say facing three ways, but effectively that is also at the same time facing one way, which is to say that environmentalism matters to people, no matter where they're from, that, that the net zero agenda, the pro-nature agenda that we're advocating is actually something that resonates across the whole country, not just in England, which you talked about, but also in Scotland and Wales, where we saw disappointing um, results for the Conservatives as well, and that you know, there just aren't votes in pursuing anti-environmental agenda and we saw that from from reform that the new incarnation of the brexit party i think only has two councillors at the end of it you know, there have been suggestions um that i think we discussed this last time there have been suggestions that it could be a vote loser for conservatives but actually all the polling evidence and i think this electoral evidence shows the total opposite this is an issue people want to see results on mm. want to see a conservative approach to absolutely i mean one of the arguments was Reform UK was that uh, net zero and green policies um, were the reason for the cost of living crisis. Um, and I think the voters have demonstrated at the local elections, which they rightly don't buy that argument and put more focus on um, international factors like rising oil and gas prices. Um, so you're absolutely right. Retracting from our, our environmental commitments um, is not a vote, but actually. Um, strong environmental protections and uh, a credible record on tackling climate change and creating new green jobs and industries is um, is a vote winner across the country. Is there something to be said about party gate? Don't I mention it. You know how much of an impact did that have on the results? Do you think? I mean, as we said, this isn't just about the environment. It'd be a little bit naive to say that this it tells us everything about um, you know party politics. But it's a you know it is a, an indicator of where voters are. Um, and there are other factors at play. Partygate and the cost of living probably factored in. How much do you think that played a part? Yeah, I mean, you know, Partygate is, is its kind of own story, really. But I think on the cost of living, again, um, and this is something that, that, you, that yourself and, and our colleague Jack have been arguing, Lindsay, is that actually going half a leather for, for net zero can help ease the cost of living pressures, whether it's um, cheaper energy, whether it's insulating homes to reduce people's um, energy bills. Uh, Net zero is part of the solution over the, the short and also the, the medium to long term to, to the rising um, prices that we're seeing at the moment. Um, I think the government should be should, should be uh, making that case very clearly. And then that seems to me that that's going to be the issue. I think when people are voting the ballot box, yeah, they're understandably very, very concerned about party gate and they do care about the environment. But our challenge is to show exactly as James says that it is only by marrying up the cost of living problems and, and with, a, with an environmentalist solution and that, that is going to be the political issue for the next year I suspect. Yes, I agree. I agree John. 
I think it's also worth saying on the uh, local election result that sadly this means that several of our SM councillor network will have lost their seats, but it, at the same time a lot of new Conservatives have, despite these results, been elected and it's a great time for people to join our councillor network, get a lot of support that our team can provide for your campaigns and your messages on issues like clean air and on space for nature and about how you can work with local businesses and I think that's a, you know, one positive we can take away from this is the opportunity to do more to, to reach out to, uh, to new councillors uh, on the Conservative Side. What a smooth advert right there. Thank you. <laughs> um, I suppose related to kind of cost of living, our next topic is very much related to some of this. Um, I think in particular there was the energy security bill. Before I kind of go into detail, um, so we had the Queen's speech on Tuesday which Prince Charles delivered on behalf of Her Majesty, um, which sets out the government's new legislative agenda. Um, which probably looking towards the next general election. Um, but throughout the speech, there were some really um, important green bills, let's say, or bills that could be green, um, with uh, hopefully some, some work from Senate MPs to be done there. Um, but sorry, the first one to mention is the energy security bill, which follows on from what James was saying on the cost of living, um, which is. The, the kind of crux of the issue is that we need more homegrown renewables and we need to be less reliant on um, foreign fossil fuel markets, which are much more volatile. We want to be able to be energy independent. Um, and hopefully the energy security bill will kickstart that new net zero um, industry, um, which is very exciting. I'm hoping it's gonna be lots of good stuff. There's I mean, loads of other bills to talk about, but um, that's, that's the first one to kick off with. And on the energy security bill, what, you know, what specifics are we hoping to see from this in terms of what you, know, you talk about starting your industry? What is it that needs to get off the ground? What changes do we need to see from this? Well, we've already seen a huge um, expansion of renewable energy with wind and, and some solar. But um, looking ahead to the future, we need to be financing projects that are producing hydrogen, specifically clean hydrogen, um, and carbon capture and storage. So hopefully in this bill, we'll see some funding mechanisms. Um, what worked very well with previous renewable projects is contracts for difference. Um, but the difference between that and what we're hoping to see in this is that those CFDs have gone on to bills, which is completely fair at the time and um, has brought down the cost of renewables massively, which is helping to keep bills down now. Um, but for future projects and generation of um, energy, clean hydrogen, carbon capture and storage projects, that needs to be kept off bills with other funding mechanisms. Yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah, it's worth saying that yeah, yeah, there are there are some very small costs in these so-called green levies that are for these legacy renewable projects, but actually these are projects that are paying for themselves now, but where we've still got some of the associated costs from years ago from the initial rounds of uh, yeah. CFDs um, on the bills. Um, what, what about some of the other bills? I mean, I think there's there's some news on on transport and on some uh, on some financial services and, and the infrastructure bank. Do you want to say a bit about those? Yeah, I'd love to, John. Um, the, the transport bill uh, is uh, is hoping to create great British railways, which um, you know the, the Secretary of State Grant Shapps has has spoken about a lot and done some fantastic videos. If you haven't already seen them, go check them out. They're actually pretty funny. Um, but hopefully it will create that and uh, fix the kind of fragmentation that we currently see in the rail system. Um, rail is 
you know, it is a sustainable form of transport if when you compare it to, to cars and I hope to see electrification of more railway. Um, but if we can fix the fragmentation and hopefully join up some of those routes, then we can encourage more people to use use uh, use trains and rather than, than private cars. The other thing in the transport bill is um, speeding up the installation of charge points. So you know we are seeing an electric vehicle revolution um, as we move towards the 2030 phase out of new sales for petrol and diesel cars. We're going to see more and more electric vehicles on our roads, and we need to make sure that we have a charge point um, system that is is up, up to scratch really. And hopefully this will unlock some of that um, uh, investment and make it easier to install charge points across the country. You said the other ones as well, I almost forgot. You said um, financial services and markets bill, this is kind of something I'm personally generally very excited about. It is the, the um, reform of financial markets and, and services since Brexit. So this is an opportunity for us to really put our stamp on it. Um, and uh, it could, on the one hand, unlock a lot of investment for renewable projects with the reform of something called Solvency 2. Don't want to bore you by going into too much detail there, but that could be very exciting for unlocking a lot of investment. Um, and the other side of, of, of it that we would like to see um, that, that, that could really uh, benefit transition plans for net zero, transition plans, if you don't know, um, is essentially how big companies will now have to say how they're going to move to net zero. But the, the current issue with some of these is the transparency issue. Uh, and what we'd love to see in this is more involvement from shareholders. Uh, basically what, what they call a say on climate, which is where shareholders can vote non-binding, but they, they get to see and they get to scrutinise um, transition plans from large organisations. So that's one thing. The other kind of finance side is the UK Infrastructure Bank. Um, which is formally being uh, set up in legislation from this bill um, and that will be used to leverage private finance into new projects to decarbonise our power heat um, and transport networks and has a, a, a massive potential there um, which could be expanded for nature. Absolutely, you could have a, another um, core mission for the bank to help deliver the government's legally binding target um, to halt species decline by 2030 um, and this would, would unlock investment in, in, in natural habitats and, and nature recovery uh, and would also support the other two objectives of the bank which is um, uh, economic growth and, uh, and net zero. And you, uh, you talked about nature and something else on the nature and farming side. Lindsay mentioned the B word earlier, Brexit. Um, and you know, there are, have been divisions in, uh, well, obviously within the Conservative Party, within the Senate caucus. We've got Leavers and Remainers. I dare say we've got it within the Senate team and indeed uh, on those of us who are here talking today um, about our views on it. But, but one, of the, one of the things I think is really good in terms of post-Brexit stuff is a lot of the things we can do on the environment post-Brexit are exactly the sort of thing that I think Leavers and Remainers can get behind. I mean, the most obvious of those is the replacement of the common agricultural policy, which I think is widely regarded as having been a total disaster for the environment. I think even the most die-hard Remainers would struggle to defend um, that. But this Queen's speech included some, some indications of further changes, and one of those was on gene editing, and there's a the proposed genetic technology bill. Which, James, do you want to say a little bit more about what gene editing is and how, how that could be uh, good for the environment? You're absolutely right, John. This is a, a pro-innovation measure which takes advantage of 
those Brexit freedoms that, that you mentioned. Um, gene editing is, is a form of precision breeding, uh, which enables you to um, select particular characteristics in, in crops and animals, which can help to make them more resilient to pests, for example, or to, to climate change, uh, either drought or, or flooding. Um, so it's good for food production, uh, it's good for the environment, it reduces our reliance on, um, on uh, manufactured inputs like uh, pesticides and, and fertilisers, um, and, and it therefore can help to reduce farmers' costs as well. Um, There's an international competitiveness angle here, right? Am I missing this? Because like, the post-Brexit sort of you know, overhaul offers us a massive opportunity, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, also remember the UK is a real leader in kind of biotechnology and science. Um, so we have a uh, an innate advantage um, in this, and by kind of streamlining regulation, creating a, uh, a scientifically informed uh, authorization process and approvals process for these technologies to provide a route to markets um, for plants and animals, which are great using precision, te uh, precision technologies. Um, that's uh, that could be great for yeah for for UK innovation and competitiveness. And then just doing it in a way that's more streamlined, more straightforward, and less bureaucratic than the EU, which has constrained us for you know for years on, on exactly the sort of area that we could, as Lindsay said, be world leaders in. Absolutely. I think the difficulty with everything we've just said is that we've prefaced it by saying it could. All of these bills could have a massive impact on um, what we've just talked about. There is still loads more that needs to be done. Um, and we've seen, you know, right at the top, we spoke about energy security bill. There needs to be more done to ease the cost of living. Kind of linking in with, again, what we talk about with local elections, actually, is that the cost of living is going to be the dominating um, topic in um, in politics. And these, the, the legislative, legislative agenda um, that the Conservatives put forward, you know, it, it needs to be addressing some of these issues. On, on energy efficiency, we need to do a hell of a lot more. Um, and I suppose with the energy security bill, you know, funding hydrogen and carbon capture and storage projects aren't in the next 12 months going to be cutting, cutting bills. Um, there does seem a, an obvious solution to this, which is energy efficiency, uh, but it's just how, how do we go about doing that, I suppose? Well, absolutely. It's about, it's about funding that in a way. And, you know, we've had various attempts at doing it that have had, let's be honest, limited success. But you know the, the stats are pretty clear. It's 19 million homes across the UK are rated EPC band D or below. But the simple fact that means that when people are generating energy, a huge amount of it is being wasted. And by upgrading these homes by at least one band up to C, could reduce the amount of energy it takes to heat a home by 20% and cut our net imports of gas by 15%. At a time when you know we're, we're dealing with pressure of rising gas prices, that that's that's a measure that's going to pay itself back very very quickly. And you know, we saw some good news in the spring statement with the Chancellor Cup PAT on this, but there's certainly more that could be done. And yeah, energy efficiency is a relatively cheap and short term way of, of doing that. It's also of course, living government's also got to deliver its promise to level up the country. Um, a lot of these bills will help that, uh, help with that, um, creating um, jobs in, in new industries, um, like carbon capture storage and hydrogen, as, you, as you've mentioned. Lindsay. But one area that we would like to see the government doing more of on the levelling up agenda is integrating the idea of natural capital um, into its plans for levelling up and how it, it measures um, the kind of 12 missions um, that set itself um, for, for levelling up the country. Um, that's good for the economy, um, you can create jobs in 
in, in nature recovery. It's good for resilience and things like uh, flooding. It's good for health and well-being by expanding access to nature, which is woefully unequal in the country um, at, at the moment. But it also supports the government's kind of building beautiful agenda. We want more beautiful green homes um, and integrating and nature and building the grain of nature is absolutely part of that. So the levelling up bill is also crucial um, for delivering the promises that the Prime Minister has made to the country. Yeah, I'm hoping that um, as an organisation, so we'll be doing lots of work with our wonderful caucus members um, and, and trying to get some of this into these bills. There's, there's lots to watch, but um, there's more that the government can do to be lowering people's bills, achieving net zero and restoring nature in the meantime. So um, hopefully we'll get some some, some work done on that. Also, I mean, b before we get onto some of these bills, what's happening next week, John? Well, uh, from, from the UK elections uh, last week to the Australian federal election next week, we are going down under. Um, so on uh, the 21st of May, that's uh, Saturday, Australians will go to the polls to elect their new federal parliament um, in a really, really crucial and so far very, very close election uh, between the Liberal National Coalition and the centre-right coalition, uh, which is currently leading the country, uh, led by Scott Morrison on one side, and then the uh, Australian Labour Party on the other. And bear in mind that the last election there was only six seats difference between them. It's incredibly close. Labour have been ahead in the opinion polls throughout the campaign. Um, and you know, you look at it and say they're probably just going to sneak ahead. But then at the last federal election in 2019, you just said exactly the same. And the Liberals and Nationals uh, snuck in at the end with a very, very small lead. So it's all to play for and of course this matters hugely when it comes to climate change policy. Australia is per capita one of the biggest emitters in the world, it's one of the biggest fossil fuel exporters in the world, it's come under a lot of criticism for not being ambitious enough under Scott Morrison and, and indeed his predecessors of, of both parties on climate change and so it's going to be a really really interesting election to see uh, to see what happens. Mm. What because you've been working very closely with legislators from um, the Liberal National Coalition um, uh, through a partner organisation called uh, Coalition for Conservation. What are the potential ramifications for the kind of centre-right case for, for climate action um, as a result of these elections? Well, I think Australia is, you know, it, it's not like the UK. I think we have so much in common with Australia as a country. But as I say, you've got the, the issues of, about it being a huge fossil fuel exporter. And it's worth just breaking down. I mean, we talk about the Liberal National Coalition. This isn't a temporary coalition. This is a, a semi-permanent coalition between two parties. The, the Liberals are not like our Liberals. They're much more like our Conservative Party. They're our Conservative sister party. Um, and they represent a lot of, you know, very standard sort of seats in Australia in urban areas, suburban areas and across the, you know, the whole country. The nationals are called a regional party, probably what we call rural areas and they represent a lot of farming communities, a lot of places which have got these extractive industries, particularly coal um, but also natural gas and so you, you can see where I'm going with this, that actually the, the pressure that the nationals have put on the coalition has been quite understandably to think about the interests of people in those industries. You know, in the UK we've very, very successfully driven coal almost entirely off our grid and it will be gone entirely in a couple of years. In Australia, this is a huge part of their national wealth, it's a huge part of their exports, it's a huge part of their jobs. And we're asking effectively, or the world is asking Australia to pivot away from that to a renewable energy base, which I think is full of opportunities for Australia. 
but that's a huge challenge. It's a very different challenge to the one that we face in the UK. So in the elections, you know, Australia under the, under the current administration is defending a 2030 uh, nationally determined contribution as its national plan under the UN of a 26 to 28% emissions reduction by 2005 levels. And might just about reach that, but the Labour Party is advocating going much further on that, although both parties have a 2050 uh, net zero target, which was a, you know, a great step forward that Scott Morrison announced um, just before COP26 last year. So environment's not going to be the main issue of this election, but it clearly is a huge issue for Australia um, as a country. One of the kind of um, related, but not, I suppose, directly um, the sort of similar issues is national security, right? Because um, for us in the UK, although we have relatively low imports from um, Russia from, for oil and gas, it has definitely affected the price of, uh, of gas um, and is, is supporting our, our move towards renewables. Is that a similar kind of um, area that they're looking into? Well, I think you know, national security is a strong area in elections normally for all the centre-right parties and I think it's certainly something that we'll want to talk about I mean we'll all be conscious of the, the AUKUS pact um, that, that's been engaged in by Australia and the UK and the US uh, with some further defence collaboration particularly on submarine technology um, and I think you know, that, that's something that the Australian coalition's you know, talking about very very effectively but you know, they're facing as you say a lot of the same issues as us you've got petrol is up, inflation's up the cost of living has jumped to the number one concern for Australian voters. You know, as usual in elections, the economy is a huge part of it. I would argue, however, that you know, climate and the environment is such a central underpinning of that economic argument. And I think the risk to Australia in the longer term is that going further on coal and gas as opposed to renewables, for which Australia has remarkable potential, it, that's going to end up in a situation where, sure, in the short term, that might shore them up, but you're talking about creating huge stranded assets. If you're a big fossil fuel exporter and nobody wants to import fossil fuels, you're going to have a huge problem with your coal mines at that point and, and, and you know, with your exports. So it's been really encouraging, actually, to see, even under a, you know, a more sceptical party like the Liberals and the Nationals, Australia deciding to pivot much more strongly. They've got their first legislation on authorising onshore, offshore wind. You know, worth saying Australia has, as you'd imagine, given its geography and its size, incredible offshore wind potential. We heard um, last year when I, when I brought some uh, Australian MPs over to the UK for COP26, we heard from the uh, offshore wind experts that we met there that if Australia exploited just 1% of its potential for offshore wind, it could power its entire country. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And, you know, and actually, if you go above that, one of the things Australia is really excited about, which Scott Morrison and the Liberals have been pushing really strongly, is hydrogen. And if you, know, if you exploit 2% of that potential, think how much you could do in the development of green hydrogen. And, and they're really looking at what they can do to drive hydrogen innovation and to drive hydrogen exports. And that could be a really, really crucial source of jobs, crucial source of trade, and a really crucial source of income in exactly those communities that are understandably concerned that climate agenda is going to mean moving away from coal and gas. Just lastly, John, um, I, I, it's, it's difficult to say because the, the voters haven't gone to the, the polls yet, but, but should the, the Liberal National Coalition um, lose the election or not form the next government, um, what do you think, is there a potential risk that the, the parties um, move away from their net zero commitments and revert back to, to the kind of old, um, uh, policies focused on those, as you said, the traditional industries which are, are very much fossil fuel focused. 
Um, or given that I think around 74% of Australians say um, they want to see more uh, action on, on, on climate change and believe that the, the, the benefits outweigh the costs, um, and given you know, you've had very positive interactions with, with many Liberal national legislators who brought the Green Paper to COP26 last year and were, were very willing and, and very engaged, do you think actually the party will, will kick on and continue to um, develop and exploit some of those opportunities you mentioned in offshore winds, hydrogen, solar, etc.? I really, really hope so, and I, and I think certainly the legislators I've talked to, they, they get it. They understand that this is this is what needs to happen and this is what needs to change, and not, not in a scary way, in a way that's full of opportunities. The problem that all parties have when they leave office is there's a temptation to retreat to what you feel comfortable about. You know, we, we've seen this with the Conservatives in the past, but I think it took David Cameron coming in as leader of the Conservative Party here in 2005 to challenge a lot of those preconceptions and make sure that on an issue, but he did on several issues, but on particularly an issue like climate and the environment, this was something Conservatives needed to talk about a lot more. Mm. We've seen it in similarly when, when countries have uh, you know, Conservative parties in other countries, in Canada, parts of Europe, there's such a temptation to run away from issues like that that maybe innately this com uh, uncomfortable thought for some of them. I really, really hope in this case they don't, not least because of the, the huge opportunities I've talked about. And those are opportunities that Conservatives are a better place to grasp because we innately understand the link between the economy and climate action. We don't see those two things as incompatible. I think it's so, so important that whatever happens with that result, Australia takes those opportunities and that Conservatives and the Liberals and Nationals in Australia see this agenda as one that is absolutely compatible with what they believe in. And one incredible asset Australia has, and which um, my understanding from, um, from some of the, the engagement you've done with Liberals and uh, Nationals is that they don't talk about the same way we do. It's their incredible wildlife. Um, and uh, it would also be fantastic to see Australia uh, doing more to, to protect and, and treasure um, their natural heritage as well. Absolutely. I mean, Australia is a, a vast, beautiful country with a huge variety of different uh, ecosystems and landscapes. And I, yeah, I think they're incredibly proud of it. And one of the things I think, talking particularly to the nationals who get a very tough press for their attitude on the environment, they absolutely represent those communities that see themselves as long-term custodians of the land and have a great, great love and a great sense of place and a great sense of community, which is, is something that I think any Conservative in, in the UK or anywhere in the world should absolutely want to emulate. So I, I certainly think that's uh, that's something we can, I think we can learn from Australia a lot actually on, on their love of land and, and community, but certainly somewhere that the UK and Australia can do a lot more. And the current government's got a good track record on the Great Barrier Reef, right? They, they've done more step up protections for, for, for coral reefs. They have, and um, yeah, coral's uh, something that I think is going to play a greater and greater part in, uh, in Australian politics and in global politics, just because it is one of those absolute totemic signs of the impact of the environment, for, for better or for worse. And I think you know, Australia's seen more than most countries really, really severe impact of climate. Seen it on the Great Barrier Reef, seen it with huge problems with flooding and with wildfires. Mm. And, I, and I think you know, Australia's act, you know, we talk about the front line yeah. of climate change and the front line of the nature crisis as if it's something that's a million miles away. Australia's a country that we have so, so much in common with in many respects, and it's happening there, it's affecting them there. And you know, I think Australia, it's no surprise that so many people in Australia really, really care about these issues and they want to make sure that they elect a government of whichever colour that's reflecting that. There's few places in the world where, where the impacts of climate change are more evident. Australia. Yeah.
Uh, thanks very much for joining joining us, uh, James and John, and thank you for listening. Uh, if you've got any questions, please do email them in um, to info at sen.uk.com. That's info at sen.uk.com. Um, that's all we've got time for. I look forward to uh, seeing you next time, guys. Thank you. See you next time.